Welcome to the DTB podcast for June 2023, volume 61, number six. My name's David Fazakli and I'm DTB's deputy editor. Hello, I'm James Cave, editor-in-chief. Thank you for joining us for this podcast in which we will talk about the content of June's DTB. Uh, I thought we could start today, James, by getting your thoughts on the media headline that the crisis in general practice in England will be relieved by allowing pharmacists to supply antibiotics and antivirals for a range of common conditions uh, without the need to see a GP. Uh, Today's Times and Guardian newspapers are headline stories announcing the plan to free up 15 million GP appointments over two years by allowing pharmacists to treat people with sore throat, earache, uncomplicated UTI, sinusitis, impetigo and shingles. So, from a GP perspective, how do you view this? This is all just a little bit of nonsense that's been triggered by the local elections, I think. Don't get me wrong, I'm not saying that pharmacists involved in this sort of work is nonsense, because that's not the case. But certainly locally, our pharmacists are in just as much trouble as general practice, perhaps more so. We have certain big chain pharmacies locally who are having to close on certain days because of lack of pharmacists. And the concept that they can pick up this work, um, just from a capacity point of view, frankly, I don't think is going to be an issue. And it's not going to be possible. Secondly, the numbers they're talking about are a drop in the ocean. GPs are doing um, many more million appointments now since the pandemic than they were before the pandemic because we are so stressed and this small number that may be moved away. And, and you know, the conditions that they say that pharmacists are going to be able to treat largely don't need treating. And if you've trained, and it sounds awful, but if you've trained your patients well, they know that most earache, try some paracetamol, it will get better in the majority of cases. You know, I've not seen an otitis media in a small child because of the immunization program for some months, if not a year, perhaps. Sinusitis, acute sinusitis doesn't need treatment. It needs decongestants, which pharmacists can already use. You know, I just think a lot of this is just headline capturing stuff. The two elements I think might be good, the ability to self-refer to physio, hearing tests and podiatry. Now that's good. I like the idea of that. Hearing tests, I mean, for goodness sake, why do you have to see a GP to tell the GP that you're deaf so they then can refer you? You know, I think, so that's good. Um, But the expansion of blood pressure services, that's already happening. Of course, it will just create more work for both pharmacists and for GPs. Phone technology issue they've raised. Well, that's happened anyway. We've not had an analog phone for a decade, I think. Um, It's, this is just froth and we need to move on and let's get primary care properly sorted out rather than yet another sticky plaster. I mean several things struck me when I when I saw the headlines this morning. Um, one is that there is no detail behind this yet um, so presumably this was released as a press release and the newspapers picked it up and, and duly reported it so we, ca- we can't tell what the detail is and how practically this would be introduced if it is going to be introduced. I mean, it struck me that all sorts of practical issues relating to access to medical records, information on allergies, what people have had previously. Um, and, and then there's the whole aspect of, of 
of training and, and helping people deal with demand. As you say, GPs have been through the kind of demands of antibiotic stewardship and pressure to reduce their use of, of antibiotics. And a lot of that is about, you know, managing expectations, as you say, training your population not to expect antibiotics. And, you know, pharmacists haven't had been exposed to that demand yet. So there's, there's all sorts of issues for me that um, while I think it, it could work and pharmacists absolutely could do this, it just feels, as you say, it was a it was a knee-jerk reaction to some bad elections over last week and they needed to to put something out to, to grab the initiative back. But um, it'd be very interesting to see where this goes, if it goes anywhere. Totally agree. Totally agree. And there's, there's no, I mean, what about access to diagnostic aids as well for pharmacists in this position? I mean, one of the most effective things I find for the management of someone who has recurrent sore throats and feels that antibiotics work each time is the throat swab. And if they get a negative throat swab, um, you know, it's a very powerful thing to be able to use as a way of saying, look, I don't think you need antibiotics this time. Little things like that, you know, as you say, that we have a lot of unified record with pharmacists. So if a pharmacist treats a woman with a UTI and then they come and see us a few days later, how do we know which antibiotic she was given unless she's brought the box with her or, or has an idea of what it is? And these little things actually just snarl up your workload rather than improve it so we shall see we shall see um I, I think as i say not a lot of change here except perhaps in just making actually life perhaps a bit more complicated for everyone and it, it just re reminds me that over in my 35 year career how many times have we had this <laughs> false dawn that that yeah. things are going to move to pharmacy you know community pharmacists are going to be empowered and um, enabled to take on extra services and how many times has it just not happened and as you rightly say the, the staffing of a pharmacist is in as much a crisis as general practice um, and so even if they were able to roll this out have we got the people to deliver it and is the workforce you know is the morale of the workforce such that this is is going to be easy to do uh, it, totally and and let's be honest you know a lot of Lot of practices use telephone triage. A pharmacist going to be expected to offer a telephone service? How does that all work? Or are you going to trips down to the pharmacist to be told you to go and see a doctor, or go to the doctor and be told you to go to the pharmacy? Eek! It's it's not going to get us to where we need to be. So, bottom line: headline grabbing or genuine opportunity? Which is it? Headline grabbing, par excellence. Okay, right. Well, let's watch this space, see if anything happens. But um, uh, we suspect it will be slow in coming. Right, let's start June's issue. Let's begin with the editorial. Uh, this month, Joanna Gerling, one of our board members, has provided an important reminder about uh, post-exposure prophylaxis varicella zoster in pregnancy. Uh, and what is the reminder? So this is a really good editorial that Joanna's uh, written. And just to remind ourselves that chickenpox is a potentially serious illness um, and can be life-threatening actually for non-immune pregnant women. And we think that probably about 10% of the UK adult population is not immune. Um, so there's an issue for the pregnant woman if they develop chickenpox. And there's also an issue for the unborn child if a woman develops chickenpox and they're not immune in the first or second trimester, you can develop this fetal varicella syndrome and this can affect up to between half or 2% of babies, depending on what time of the pregnancy that the mother is infected. 
And obviously, if the mother gets chicken pox very close to delivery, then the baby could be born with chicken pox. And that can also be a very serious condition. And to put this into perspective, we think about 2000 maternal infections every year from chicken pox. About 10 babies are born with fetal varicella syndrome. And there are about 30 severe neonatal infections each year. So this is not a insignificant issue. And up until recently, the plan was that if you had a woman who was not immune to chicken pox and was pregnant, you might offer her post-exposure prophylaxis with um, uh, an immunoglobulin. So that's a pooled donor blood product, which was given intramuscularly within 10 days of the exposure. And then the issue which Joanna is raising here in her editorial is that a year ago, the UK Health Security Agency changed its uh, guidance on this and moved towards using acyclovir, oral acyclovir or valacyclovir as a first choice for women for post-exposure prophylaxis in pregnancy. And this has been shown to be more effective than the immunoglobulin uh, less adverse effects. It's simpler. And the big issue is it's better supply. There's been issues always. I mean, I think most GPs who've ever been involved in this, trying to find a unit that's got immunoglobulin um, to organise this can be a nightmare. So this is a really important, very simple change in guidance, which is better for women um, and better for the health system in general and better for babies. So the issue that Joanna points out is that the Green Book and RCOG guidelines have not yet been updated to detail this. So all those first-line paramedics, clinical pharmacists, GPs, A&E doctors, if you see a pregnant woman who's had a, a chickenpox contact and does not believe that they are chickenpox immune, this guidance is really important. And as Joanna points out, that we are talking, although acyclovir uh, is, is recommended, it's worth highlighting the fact that it's not licensed for this indication, um, but is widely accepted as the right thing to do. Indeed, absolutely. Um, but, you know, as I say, there's been a study that compared uh, the acyclovir versus the immunoglobulin. It's quite a small study, I think only about 200 or so women, but the women given the immunoglobulin, 41% went on to develop varicella infection. And I think it was about half that in um, women given acyclovir. So it's more effective. The The interesting thing about it is that it's a, a QDS. It's 800 milligrams QDS, which is not the therapeutic dose we use for shingles or uh, chicken pox, which is five times a day. And the other odd thing is that you start it on day seven of the first contact. So you don't rush and start it immediately. You start on day seven and that gives you time to do IgG testing if you're unsure whether the woman is immune or not. Um, so it's, it's a nice, very simple approach now, transforms our ability to try and keep these women and their babies safe. Um, but it needs to be laid out more effectively in the green book and in uh, guidance. I had a quick look at the BNF and it, the BNF does contain this this advice. So if you look up the instructions in BNF, it, it is there, but it isn't cross-referenced from other parts of BNF. So if you ended up on the page for the varicella zoster immunoglobulin, it doesn't then refer you back to the, to the latest advice. So even though it's it's in the BNF, it's not 
kind of cross-reference to the extent you'd perhaps you would you would hope it would be. Um, and as as Joanna pointed out, you know, the the Green Book and the and the RCOG guideline isn't isn't updated either. I think CKS, when I had a quick look at Anais's clinical knowledge summary, that has got the new the new guidance in it. Um, and I also checked BMJ's best practice tool, and I can say that that has been updated. Um, so that does contain the latest advice. So well done, best practice team. That is there. But it just reminds us we, we're not that good, are we, at making sure that all guidelines are rapidly updated? Well, it's, it's a nightmare, I think, isn't it? Um, there's so many guidelines now that it's difficult to know where they all are. And, and if you Google post-exposure prophylaxis for varicella in pregnancy, uh, the first thing that I picked up, which was a government website, and I clicked on it, and it took me to the paper which talked about immunoglobulin. So um, I think, yes, I think it's just, you just need to listen to DTB podcasts. That's what you need to do. We'll keep you up to date. Excellent. That's good. Good to know. Right. Thank you for that. Um, let's have a quick look at two um, DTB select items this month. Um, the first is a summary of the Asprey fracture um, study. Do you want to talk a bit about that one and what it's about? Yes, uh, this was a catch up for me because I hadn't been aware of the Asprey project, which has been this large project where they took, I think, almost 20,000 um, elderly uh, adults over the age of, well, mean age of about 74. And they basically wanted to see whether 100 milligrams of aspirin every day would reduce cardiovascular disease, cognitive decline, depression, cancer, physical disability, major and major bleeding episodes. Um, as a sort of general thing, I think this was all started because I think the first paper that was ever published on this goes back to about 2016. So this is a project that's been on for some time. Um, but this particular sub-study looks at whether aspirin um, reduced fracture rates and falls in um, a subgroup of the population. Um, and as you might expect, uh, it doesn't prevent fractures. I, and um, it's one of those, well, should this be in the Journal of the Blindingly Obvious? But um, it doesn't. <laughs> uh, what it does do, interestingly enough, it does seem to increase almost by one percentage point the risk of serious falls. And I presume that's not because aspirin makes you fall from a greater height. But I suspect it's because if you're taking aspirin and you fall, it may be then that the complications of that fall are more serious. You may bleed more likely and therefore end up in hospital. Um, but there we are. That's the, yeah, So the Asprey project has been going on for some time. Um, and this was simply a sub-study assessment of fracture and fall outcomes. It was interesting because it, this was older people, but they were healthy older people, weren't they, who were living in their own homes. So it was a... Kind of targeted at people who have got no really serious underlying illnesses and then following them up for five years. I mean, I, I struggled a bit to know why Why would you think aspirin would have, have an impact? Um, but there seemed to be some rationale that about it, it might have an effect on bone fragility. Um, yes, and I think we forget that there was a time when aspirin could do no wrong, wasn't there? I think, what, sort of 10 or perhaps a bit longer years ago, you know, we were using it for primary prevention. There was talk about it preventing 
bowel cancer. Um, yeah, so I, I think it's quite interesting if you are a fan, and, I, and you do get the odd um, person who's still a big fan of aspirin. You know, they sort of catch you out by saying they're still taking it, you know, sort of buying it from the pharmacy. Um, and uh, it's the Asprey project is quite good looking at, I say, a huge range of different issues surrounding aspirin and its benefits and risks. I mean, it's an interesting mix because most, I think, just looking at the numbers, most of the recruits to the study were based in Australia. Uh, I think it was about 17,000 people aged over 70 years from Australia, and then about two and a half thousand either 70 or older or I think some minority groups age 65 or over from the USA. So quite an interesting mix of, of pop populations. But as you say, as you say it, it didn't do anything, did it? Question whether that risk of fall was significant or not. But, but so far, I, I think all the studies, the Asprey studies, when we looked at them, haven't really shown a benefit. No, no, it's um, one of those things where actually some a whole collection of negative studies, but actually that's really useful. Yes, always always good to know a negative um, as much as a positive sometimes. Okay, thank you for that. And then the second select item is is a <laughs> it's a paper that made me cross. Uh, do you want to describe it, and then I can I can say a bit, bit yes. why it made me cross. So this was a study funded by Novartis who make in Clizaran, and it was a pooled patient level data um, study where they pooled the data from the three phase three trials. So Orion 9, Orion 10, and Orion 11. So that pulled together about three and a half thousand patients and basically took the data and compared the 1800 or so who had been given in Clizarin with the 1800 or so given placebo. Is that enough for you to then give it to me? <laughs> okay, so so <laughs> they looked at the data from those, those three. And it's worth saying that those three studies were set up weren't they purely to, well, their, their primary outcome of those studies was effect on LDLC. Yep, I should have said that's right. So they were just looking at LDC. They looked at, um, I think they looked at the change at day 90 and day about 18 months further on. And what they showed, and this was the bit they were meant to show in the study and what it was um, designed to do, that there was about a 50% a LDC, sorry, low density lipoprotein reduction, 50% reduction. Um, between uh, those on enclizarin and those taking or having a placebo. So it reduced your LDLC by about what 1.4? Yeah, absolute levels. Yeah, about um, yes, 1.4. So it does what you'd expect it to do. It, exactly, it lowers, lowers cholesterol. But those three, and what what irritated me about the, the paper was that those three studies were set up mainly to look at um, effect on LDL cholesterol and adverse effects now within those adverse effects some of the some of the studies um, looked at cardiovascular adverse effects these were not primary outcomes uh, these were either secondary outcomes or they might have been exploratory outcomes so let's just see what what it does and the trials didn't have formal endpoint adjudication committees for these for these cardiovascular endpoints, and some weren't even specified. So, what the authors then did was to try and suck out the data on um, cardiovascular endpoints and present it as though you know you can see a difference between the two two groups: those who had enclizumab and those who didn't. And yeah, there, there are some differences in the numbers. 
but the studies weren't set up for this. They, they weren't powered for this. And it, for me, it almost seems to give a bit of a legitimacy to saying that, that we have some outcome data for Inclusoran when actually we don't have any outcome data for Inclusoran other than knowing it lowers your, lowers your cholesterol. So it just irritated me that you've got this paper that, that is, is presenting a narrative Whereas we've got to wait probably another two or three years before we get the formal studies that are designed with uh, cardiovascular endpoints as their primary outcome. And they're not going to be report probably, uh, what do we think, until 2026, 2027? What was the point of this paper? I agree. And of course, if this paper had demonstrated an enormous difference in cardiovascular outcomes, one would have to say, you know, what is the ethical situation organizing two large placebo-controlled studies to look at it. Um, the other thing I think is always worth remembering is the rule of three when it comes to adverse events. And the rule of three states that if you've got an adverse event that occurs in, say, one in a thousand people, you need a trial where at least three times that number of people are taking the drug to pick up, to be sure to pick up one of those adverse events. So and, and, and this is the thing we've got to be aware of. So we've got a very, you know, this was only 3,000 patients, this combination of those three Orion studies. So only 1,800. So we don't really know what the adverse effects are, perhaps, of this drug yet. And it, as you say, the I think the two placebo-controlled trials have got about 15,000 participants, and that's what we're going to need to really understand where this drug, this small interfering ribonucleic acid drug that lower density lipoprotein cholesterol, where it sits in our armamentarium. Because at the moment it's been put at a certain position saying we should give it to patients who can't tolerate a statin, those with familial hypercholesterolemia, those who don't reach target on a statin. But that's based on just what it does to cholesterol, as you say, not on any endpoints. And I think one of the concerns I have is that uh, there is a bit of prejudice out there against statins. The press really hounded it about five or so years ago. And it's very important that we make sure that we don't sort of skip over a drug like a statin in a patient who says, oh, I just think they may have given me a little bit of a side effect and give them a drug which we don't yet know enough about. So, uh, you know, I think it's really important that as a, as a clinician managing patients with cardiovascular risk, if they've got high, high enough cardiovascular risk to perhaps be considered for inclisirin, you should first of all be absolutely sure they really can't tolerate a statin because that's where all the evidence is at the moment. And that's the drug that's going to do the most good. So I just think it's too easy to say, oh, OK, we'll try the new drug if you don't think statins are for you. And that's the wrong approach at this stage. And particularly given that, well, when when was the 4S um, study? That was 1994, I think. 1994. So we, we've got day. We've got what was that? Almost 30 years of experience and data with using statins, and less than a year with Inclizaran. So, mm. so it's, yes, as you say, it's important that we um, we maintain the focus on ensuring that people are managed on statins at work and maximising those before reaching for the new toys, which we don't know what, quite what they're going to do yet. So um, anyway, I'll, I'll switch off my irritation mode and um, <laughs> let's move on. Ooh, we are so <laughs> irritated today. We, we are, we are. Um, let's move on to our main review article. 
just quick overview of this adverse drug reactions hospitalizations and what can we do this is a i think a really one of those really good studies where i um, just wish we hadn't got a pay wall but uh it's worth every penny so this is a big review of adverse drug reactions pointing out that medication related admissions to hospital due to harm is probably as high as 16 percent um that was from data in 2021 and they've doubled since 2004. And there's a suggestion that about two thirds of these medication um, related harmful events are probably preventable. And this is a really nice review article that goes into why, you know, what's going on, why is that? And it talks about age being a dominant risk factor for this, that the drug burden, I mean, it's staggering. There's been a 50% increase in uh, drug use since 2004, 1.1 billion prescriptions dispensed in England and Wales in 2019. I mean, it's just, I mean, you know, we talk about GPs, you know, workload increasing, but that's an awful lot of extra work for pharmacies. So, uh, you know, and it, this this is just this huge, and, and a lot of it is for the right reasons, you know, we're preventing heart disease, we're, we're treating diabetes, all these things are good, but the drug burden just gets bigger and bigger and more complex. And the balance between managing the benefits and harms for any given individual is just becoming increasingly complex. And our authors look at this and they talk about the need for, you know, making sure that we've got good data, that we have a single patient record so we can see what's going on, that we work in teams, that it's not just an ability for a pharmacist who may be the expert at the drug and the GP who may be the expert, one hopes they would be the expert for the patient. And together we need to to sort of work together to create a, a much safer environment. Uh, and they talk about methods optimization, they talk about the structured medication review. So a really nice overview of the situation with some uh, useful links to things like screening tools and risk scores that you can use to try and tease these sorts of things out. And for me, yes, it was just bringing together lots of concepts about um, managing complex polypharmacy, as you say, the tools that you can use to screen and assess people, and some of the ideas about what might happen in the future with better use of data, um, following people through data, um, and something maybe just flagging up an article that we've got coming up later in the year of, of where pharmacogenetics may play a role in improving some of the use of medicines. Yeah. Um, but, but yes, overall, a good, you know, a really good, really useful. Um, thank you to the authors for, for putting it together. Yeah, no, because it's, it's a complex area and it is an extremely well put together article. Um, and I'm just left with this thought that, you know, we have the very top of the system, this sort of game-changing new drugs, innovation always good, you know, uh, here's another new drug for this, that, and the other. And then at the, it feels like at the bottom of the system, you have this tension where you're saying, well, actually, I've now got to try and relate and understand the benefits and risk of this drug, not just for in general, but actually to this patient. And how do I communicate this in a way that the patient will understand? And how do they know to communicate to me what their fears and concerns are? And how do I make this all work? And the one thing that no one has yet put into the system to allow us to do this is time. You know, if 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 you see a study, you know, pain clinic, if they're gonna, if you're going to commission a pain clinic or an ADHD clinic or any clinic, you have to get funding in 
place to give the clinicians time to talk to patients. And yet here we are trying to make drugs safer, trying to look at all these medicines optimization plans, and yet we haven't put enough time in place to allow that. We've got, yes, structured medication reviews, 30 minutes for a pharmacist, but I think we need far more time with patients to really be able to get this right for, for the individuals. Um, and I think that's, you know, part of this mosaic which is missing at the moment is that this requires, you know, in itself its own special time. And, and you say that, you know, the pressure and the, the noise in the system to prescribe the latest new medication often um, hides the fact that, that to do that, as you say, you do need time. And if you were setting up a service for de-prescribing or rationalising prescribing, you would need to set aside time to do that. But that's just not happening at the moment. Mm. And one last thing whilst I'm on it. The other thing that I find <laughs> difficult, and another thing, is the moment you can record an adverse drug reaction to a drug, but you can't record a sort of patient preference for that drug. So you have a situation now where, you know, let's say, and I've had this recently, I had a 90-year-old man with Parkinson's disease who decided they didn't want to take their clopidogrel from their stroke some many years ago, over a decade ago. Now, I suppose I could have recorded that as a drug reaction, but I didn't. So he goes, he gets admitted to hospital and he comes back on clopidogrel because I've, clearly the GP has failed to prescribe this for this patient for their uh, cerebrovascular disease. And so this needs to be something as well. The co whole coding system and data system needs to be changed to allow for that patient interaction. You know, you, there's plenty of sort of borderline um, codes now that you can use, you know, patient decision aid used and all these sorts of codes, but there's not one that says patient decided not to take this. Uh, and I think we need those sorts of codes if we're going to have a truly personalised record. And you just wonder how many times that happens. A conscious decision not to do something is then overruled at a transfer of care, and then you have to go through the whole process of undoing it again. And, and taking it a step further, um, there's a big issue here. You may sit down with a patient and discuss something with them and come to a conclusion, and uh, that patient may then die and the relatives want to know why you didn't prescribe something. So that's such a difficult place to be. And so you need time to actually record the decision really carefully um, because it, it, you know, it's, it's a bizarre system. If, if you do something, you know, if we, if we treat, if we use antibiotics, no one really cares. But if you don't treat and something happens, then, you know, that's bad. And I think we need to change that philosophy somehow and say, look, actually, this wasn't an omission. This was a positive decision not to treat. But, you know, we need the language. We need to get that sort of culture really embedded in the system. Well, maybe this is the start of a discussion that um, can bring that on. Um, and let's take this further and see where, where we can go with that one. Um, let, let me just finish on some good news. Um, Earlier this year, we highlighted that in Australia, the government had closed down an organisation called MPS Medicine Wise, and there was uncertainty over our a journal that we've we've worked with and we know very well, Australian Prescriber. It stopped publishing in in January, and it was uncertain as to what would happen to it. Well, we've just heard that the journal will be restarting, and is going to be run by a not-for-profit publisher 
Therapeutic or Therapeutic Guidelines Limited. TGL provides independent um, practical treatment advice, evidence-based treatment advice for healthcare professionals in Australia. So this seems a good fit um, and a good result for both organisations. So we look forward to welcoming Australian prescriber back in whatever form it reappears later this year. Uh, and perhaps we'll be able to commiserate with them then for for the loss of the ashes. But um, <laughs> uh, this this may come back to bite me. But yeah, it may but, come back to bite you. But I, I just following from what you said, it is so good to know they're going to be back because they um, internationally they were one of the strong uh, drug bulletins. Uh, you know, together with um, you know ourselves perhaps and Prescrea, the French. Uh, drug bulletin. I think uh, it, it's important that there are internationally strong, independent drug bulletins flying the flag for safe, effective prescribing. And it's so good to know that they are going to be back with us. Okay, thank you very much. Um, you can find these and all our articles on our website at dtp.bmj.com. Uh, previous podcasts are also available on our website or from your usual uh, podcast provider. If you want to get involved with us, please let us know. You can suggest topics, um, peer review, write articles, or just comment on our content. So if you want to do that, email us at dtp.bmj.com. Uh, many thanks for listening and we hope you'll join us in a month's time for July's podcast. Music